talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, welcome aboard. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. You probably already guessed that because I didn't have a rousing introduction from young Kurt. I don't know if Kurt's on strike. I don't know if he doesn't like me, but I got no introduction from Kurt today as you would normally hear on the show. So, you know, we're going to have to plow our way through without the without the pump up. You know, you need the pump up before you come on, but no Kurt. I don't know how Scott does it when his son doesn't work for him. I don't know how much he's paying his son. You know, maybe we should ask Scott Thompson that next time he's on here, which is when he's back in a couple of days. How much are you paying that kid of yours to do all that work? I, I hope this is not, you know, sweatshop situation here where the kid's getting nothing for all the work he's doing. Well, we'll get to that. Let me go back though for one second. I know Lisa Pileski's coming up with the news in a second, but Lisa, I was just saying that the application forms are now out. You can go online and you can apply to be a city councilor. You're not guaranteed to be a city councilor. They don't, not everybody gets to do it. It's not a be a city councilor for a day program, although that would be kind of neat. Um, would you want to be a city councilor? Is oh, that something that would ever appeal to you? Absolutely not. Oh my goodness. That seems really? like such a, I mean, kudos to the the people who do fill those seats, but I, I absolutely could not do it. It's just, uh, there's a lot of work involved and you have to take a lot of abuse, you know, sometimes rightly deserved, other times not so much, but it, you know, I, I, I never want to be a politician. Please no. I see uh, the abuse is an issue for sure. And we're going to talk about that. But the other thing is I just, Lisa, I don't know about you. I don't know if you're someone who, who excels and revels in sitting in meetings for hours upon hours upon hours. The idea of being in so many meetings would make me want to take a screwdriver and shove it in my ear hole. It could not, I could not think of anything worse. That's another thing too. Like, thank goodness Ken Mann is our city hall reporter for the most part. I mean, he's, he's the city hall is his beat, but when he's on vacation or things like that, I'm usually filling in that role. And my goodness, I admire his, uh, (laughs) his ability to stay awake during some of those long ones. Like they, uh, it, hours yeah. long. <laughs> and those are the exciting ones, right? Yeah. Because Ken, Ken is only going to the big ones. He's not going to the tiny, tiny subcommittees. True. That it's like, oh. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 they, they get, you know, they get paid okay. They're not, they're not starving. Sure, but sure. I, whether you agree with their decisions or not, they are, they are earning their money. And I wanted to bring in Jeff Weibo. He is the... Let me get the proper title here so I can introduce the associate editor with James Bond Canada. Yes, there is a James Bond Canada, not the person. It's a website. It's a it's a group that is a, they look after all the James Bond stuff we need to know in this country. Jeff, how are you today? Hey, Scott. How's it going? It's going fantastic. Thanks for doing this. I, I'm assuming that for any James Bond fan, it's exciting tomorrow that we finally got a new one. It's been a while and a delay on this one too. Oh, a huge delay, actually about six delays, so we're happy to have 007 back to Canada tomorrow or even tonight if you want to go to a late screening. I assume that uh, this is going to do well because James Bond movies traditionally do well. They've all, I think, done pretty well. I don't know if, has there ever been a a James Bond movie that was a flop? Has there ever been one that just didn't work? Uh, A couple not up to the standards of other James Bond films, but definitely high box offices in general for sure right i can't remember one that bombed at the box office ever uh license to kill in 89 was a tough one um because batman came out back to the future 2 robocop Ah. indiana jones so it was a tough summer 
Does Bond still work? I mean, that's the real question that as, as it's been coming along, and, and I mean, the movies are still fantastic, but the, the concept, I mean, the original, the, the idea of Bond, he's a spy, but he's a womanizer. He's politically incorrect at times. He's a killer. There are some other throwbacks to a different era. Can, can he still work in 2021? So I've been fortunate to see the film already twice. Uh, I flew to England at the Royal Albert Hall for wow. the Royal premiere. And uh, so they brought on a screenwriter, Phoebe Wallerbridge from Fleabag, and they've definitely modernized Bond. There's going to be something for everybody tonight or tomorrow if you go see it. You know, because he is a spy from the Cold War, a womanizer, but they've, they've updated it for today. And audiences are going to be shaken and stirred if they go look, watch huh. the movie this weekend. How, okay, so how how do you update? Because some of the, the core things that makes Bond Bond would seem to be sort of firmly entrenched. So Bond hasn't changed in No Time to Die. It's the characters around him that kind of maybe groan at some of his jokes or something. And they, they have modernized. There's very strong women in this movie. Uh, Lashana Lynch plays Nami, another double O agent. And she kicks butt to, you know, so there's definitely, I could see a spinoff with her in the future uh, going forward. And so Bond doesn't change as much, but his environment changes. And, and that's kind of neat. And definitely the producers have to think about the hardcore core fans like me, but also just the average moviegoer that doesn't want to see Bond as a, you know, sexist, misogynist dinosaur from the Cold War uh, in 2021 right now. And that's, you know, it's a fantastic point you just make because you could change him completely, but I don't know that anyone wants to go to a movie to watch a suddenly chased James Bond negotiate his way through confrontation and just sit down and dialogue over the problems. I mean, they want James Bond to be James Bond. Yeah, and but you're in for a, a treat this weekend. He gets a lot of problems thrown at him in this movie and you're going to be scared, sweating, crying, laughing, and... Yeah, it's one of Daniel Craig's best acting out of all five of his Bond films, and uh, just absolutely amazing movie. If you guys go check it out this weekend for sure. This is he he has said, and I believe now because I think he said it once before and got talked back into it. But he said this is going to be his last one. Who's next? Assuming they continue to make yeah. Bond movies, who so, becomes the next one? No, it's a great question. And first, you got to. After you go see this week, the movie this weekend, you'll figure it out why. But you got to see what direction will the series go first before you can pick an actor or, or actress, but probably an actor. Uh, let's let's say, will they go back to like a period piece in the 50s, smoking in the casinos kind of James Bond? Or will they continue on the Daniel Craig kind of rebooted timeline? It, once they can determine what direction they're going... Uh, then they can determine if they're going to pick Henry Cavill or if they're going to, I, I would like, if they're just going to carry on with a Daniel Craig, Charlie Hunnam from uh, Sons of Anarchy is, right. is a pretty good actor. But like, if they wait 10 years, who knows what will happen? Maybe they hire, um, you, you know, the Spider-Man kid, maybe, or who knows? Maybe Ildris Alba will come in and he'll have a black bond. We don't know. So, well, and so that's, you know, that's... They want to take the, the series. Idris Elba is a really interesting one. He's been talked about a lot and, and people would know him. He was in The Wire and he's been, he's been in a million different things. Fantastic mm -hmm. actor. I mean, everything he's been in has been amazing. The one question is, is James Bond so now 
I used the word before, entrenched in our psyche? Is he so much what we've seen before? Could you change him up to make a black actor become James Bond at this point? Or is that almost silly? I mean, Idris Elba, the acting part, no question. Amazing actor. But just are we too far down the path to make a change that radical? Like, I I don't envy the future screenwriters to have to figure it out. Um, But it's quite possible anything's going to go. But again, they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. Is it, is this, is it going to be a James Bond film in 2025 where he's featured in 2025 or do they throw him back in the sixties again? And, and uh, maybe there's just a black James Bond and they just don't even talk about it. And then they go forward on that. Who knows more people are getting paid more than me huh. uh, write the screenplays. And I, yeah, after you see it this weekend, I don't envy the future Bond uh, people. All I'd say, if you do go watch the movie, Stick around to the very, very, very last second of the of the credits, and for for people that are big fans, they'll understand why. All right. <laughs> it, will, will whoever? Uh, absolutely, I'm making a note to do that. Do not leave. Pull the. Uh, it's got to be the Ferris Bueller. Stay till the end of the credits, and then uh, you get the little bonus thing there. All right, we'll watch for that. You got it. Um, just before we go, is there? Do you believe that whoever eventually will get that role down the road? Do they have a ton of say in how the character is portrayed? I mean, they portray them, they act them how they wish, but they don't write the lines. They don't put them in the situ- in the circumstances. Do you believe that anyone who takes that role has enough power to push a certain narrative or a certain change or adjustment in Bond? So I, I never really saw that in the series before with Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, then Pierce Brosnan. As soon as Daniel Craig got in and after he completed Casino Royale and he actually got a writing credit on Quantum of Solace because there was a writing uh, a writing strike in Hollywood. Then from there, he, he got a producer role and really was involved in the character, which was kind of extremely rare for the series to have the Bond be in charge of like the direction of the series. Because usually Brosnan probably just got a script and did what he was told, right? So future Bond, they're going to look and say, well, Daniel Craig got to say where he wanted mm. his movies to go so i want my i want my say I, that's what i would see so it's quite possible jeff weibo from uh, james bond canada as he says stick around if you go see it to the very very end and you know what make your own decisions look at it and decide if as jeff says they have updated bond to be relevant and acceptable and good for where we are now because society has changed you can decide jeff listen always appreciate you taking time thanks for doing this thanks so much uh, i'm here with uh, murray gillespie he's the other partner in vancouver and you can find us on YouTube, uh, James Bond Canada. And the website as well, jamesbondcanada.com. You're all over the place. Uh, thanks for doing this, Jeff. Bye. Tina Turner, of course, the latest artist to sell her catalog. All the songs she's performed and the, the hits she's made, her likeness, even the rights to her name. She now joins Bob Dylan and Neil Young and many others who are selling it to big companies making their money, I guess, while they can. And the companies then deal with the opportunities that these works present to them. Alan Cross is with us. He is a fantastic music writer, probably the best music writer. I'll give him that one. Uh, Author of a journal of musical things. Also now the author of a children's book about music. There is nothing this man cannot do. Alan, how are you today? I'm good. We'll see what, uh, see what I can do for you here. Well, why is she doing this? Why are the others doing this? It's very simple. Um, they have reached a certain age, and they want all their future money now. And I completely understand that, because if you sell 
the future prospects in your music, your image, this, anything else, uh, you get a big whack of money up front. Tina Turner is probably, well, it's always a, a multiple of whatever money she's bringing in right now. So let's say she's getting $7,500 million. That money lands in her bank account. That money is hers. It's just that she would have had to wait for it. But Tina's uh, in her 80s. And the way to do things right now responsibly is to get this money up front so you can settle everything with your estate, your inheritances, your, you know, any outstanding debts that you might have. It's, it's just at this point in your life, it's, it's kind of like a reverse mortgage, you know, mm. um, and, and that way you are completely shielded from any financial shocks the rest of your life. Just talk, you know, think about how much peace of mind that would bring you. Sorry, you just completely flattened me there when you mentioned that she's in her 80s. I just I, Tina Turner to me is in on the stage at Live Aid with Mick Jagger and is sort of in that per, perpetual sort of youth kind of thing. It's hard to imagine Tina Turner Tina Turner being in her 80s, but you yeah, know, I, I it know. does. Time uh, does move with, along. Same with Bob Dylan. Same with Paul McCartney. Same with yeah. all these other people. Uh, McCartney hasn't sold, but I've got I've been list of people who have actually done this, and it is quite long cashing out uh, for big dollars. And uh, I mean, look at it this way. If uh, you could retire today, yet still receive all the future salaries that you would get until your actual, you know, legal retirement date, wouldn't you take it? It would be tempting. I, I think yep. I think most people would, and you could then find something else you like to do or keep doing what you want to do. But yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, is there a sense among, because the, the artists, I mean, obviously they're doing this, you're talking about, it's like a retirement, so they are going to be older, but is there a sense among the artists, do you think that also tastes in music are changing and the value of their property may go down as more and more people who have been fans of them also become older and perish? Well, it's actually the opposite because really these yes these companies are buying up these songs. You know, there's Round Hill Music, uh, BMG, who's the purchaser of the Tina Turner stuff. There's uh, Primary Wave. There's Hypnosis. Uh, there's in Canada. There's something called the Kilometer Music Group. They're they're buying up all this music because they believe it has long term staying power. They have to make their money back for themselves yes. and their investors. And uh, they believe that these songs and these catalogs are so great that they will be able to uh, exploit them. And that, that sounds like a bad word, but that's actually what we're talking about here, is, is exploit these and unlock the value of these songs for, for years or maybe even decades to come. Uh, and it's interesting about Tina Turner selling her images and likeness to, to BMG, too. Uh, you know what, that... That just that just smells of hologram concert. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 No, I I thought something not exactly that, but I thought yeah, you, something computerized something or other. Absolutely. Uh, and when you say exploit, and I know what you mean by that, even though it is a word that sounds like it's got a negative connotation. I mean, this could literally this is that this is I suppose the scary part of this. If you're Tina Turner or anyone else, this stuff could literally end up anywhere because they're going to make that money back. So you, I mean you could see simply the best on a hemorrhoid cream commercial now, if the money is right there, I mean, which, which would be, you know, I, I don't know, kind of not the right time or the place for some of these things, but it could be. I'm, I'm willing to guess that there are certain clauses that if the song, uh, her songs uh, need to appear in a, 
marketing product that she has a thumbs up or thumbs down. So uh, nobody is going to put, nobody should put a Tina Turner song in a hemorrhoid commercial. <laughs> it was, because it was it, an example. <laughs> I, but I know what you're talking about. I, I, you know, you, you, if you lose control of your music, you lose, lose control where it goes and who sees it in what context, right? Uh, I, I would imagine, you know, that a lot of these artists will have clauses saying you can't use uh, or artist or estate must have uh, final approval for use in a product if it falls inside some sort of category. Right. Um, yeah. That wouldn't yeah. that wouldn't be unusual because you want to protect the legacy of this stuff. The most interesting thing I find out about this is that songs in the past had a lifespan. You know, they came, you listened to them, and they got big, and then they became golden oldies, and they just kind of drifted into the past. What's happening with all these purchases is that. You're extending the life of these songs, the lifespan of these songs, uh, like I said, for years and maybe decades. So this means, in some way or another, we will be hearing more of these songs for longer than we ever would have. So that means the, the old stuff really does have a, ch- a shot at overtaking and smothering the new stuff. Wow. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Alan Cross, a journal of musical things. You can find him there. Look that up online. It is a fantastic website. If you are interested in music at all, you must visit there. Alan, always appreciate it. Thanks for doing this today. You bet. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. There are some folks who are in the travel sector who, despite desperately wanting to be optimistic, are having a bit of a hard time because, well what we've been going through, and we're still not through it yet. There are, on the other hand, others who believe we are on the precipice of a massive surge in travel, as all those people who love to travel and have been stuck unable to do so, that the shackles finally fall off and they are just going to be ready to give it a go in huge waves. So which is the right answer? Well, I don't know if he knows the right answer, but he's a guy that we can turn to for some advice because he knows what he's doing. Richard Vanderlube is president of TripCentral.ca. He's on the board of the Canadian the board of the Association of Canadian Travel Agencies. He joins us now. Richard, how are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. Are you in the um, Are you in the plane half full or the plane half empty camp here? <laughs> I think I'm schizophrenic. Um, <laughs> it's been It's been a toggle back and forth, and um, you know, if you ask me on different days, I feel differently. I, you know, really, we saw in the spring and in the summer a real positive resurgence of advanced bookings for fall and winter. And then when we had Delta and we had, you know, the uncertainty of the election and, and what have you, we saw it sort of slow down. I think people just wanted to sort of wait and see. And now we're starting to see a, a climb out again. We're seeing bookings coming in with full payment and people actually getting out and returning and so you know a glimmer of hope but there's been a lot of change and um you know uh, it, it's constantly changing the requirements are changing the schedules are changing but it seems like people are booking and and uh it looks like it's going to climb up yes yeah i believe and, and you probably do too i believe wholeheartedly that people want to go i believe there's a huge desire to want to go it's just a question of whether they have the confidence to follow through and put their money down yeah, and I think, you know, the travel suppliers have done a lot to try to keep deposits low, to have flexibility with, with waivers that, that, that will allow some changes. Um, I think that, the, you know, the real, the real blocker right now, I think, for a lot of people is, 
the PCR test that, um, you know, you have to get 72 hours prior to returning to Canada. But again, you know, it's, it's widely available in the beginning. This was an issue, but now, you know, we're finding hotels are actually arranging this and it's being offered on site. So it's convenient. You don't have to run around and figure out where and how you're going to get it. Um, there is a cost to it. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, more and more of these barriers are starting to at least be known. What happens if you go somewhere and you end up getting COVID? Can you, can you get back into Canada? No, you quarantine there. So what happens if is, you know, but again, like starting at the end of October, everyone flying is going to have to be vaccinated. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, you get down there, um, you test, you test. Uh, using the PCR test, we have not heard very much of people testing positive and having to quarantine. I, I can't think of a case right now. This was happening, let's say, you know, last spring and, and when there was more going on before vaccination and everything else. But right now, it's just sort of a, a formality to go get this test. Um, but there's no doubt that if, if you test positive, they don't want you climbing on an airplane. Um, you're going to you're going to shelter there. Um, you can buy, you can insure this risk as well. Um, and we were selling quite a bit of that. Um, but, but as more and more people are double vaccinated, uh, less and less are actually buying that insurance product, but you can't yeah, buy, the, the, you can't the, insure that risk. The richer, the, the tricky part would be you could buy the risk, I suppose, or buy the, the insurance to cover that risk. But if you're someone who's not retired and you have a week of vacation and you suddenly now have to quarantine for a period of time, you still have to get home to work. So there, it's a double whammy here that, you know, and especially people who aren't necessarily on a salary who are being paid hourly, uh, that's yeah. a, that's a huge risk to take. Well, and this is why there's a bit of a disconnect between the desire to travel and then the next step, which is actually, you know, getting the booking done and, and going through with it. So that's, that's the, the Jekyll and Hyde I'm talking about, or the schizophrenia, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's waving. So I think as the winter gets, starts to come in, the weather starts to change, people haven't traveled very much. Um, and, and they're in a very, very, very small number. Again, I'm not aware of all of our customers right now, um, of anyone that, that has tested positive in destination since we've been with the vaccines rolled out. Um, sure it can happen. Absolutely. But uh, we we haven't seen it. One of the things that I've heard some people say is, is it a vacation if I go somewhere and I have to wear a mask all the time and socially distance and it's not like it was before? Is that what's happening in places? If if you go somewhere, what is the experience like? Is it full on COVID protection or is it kind of a holiday like you experienced once upon a time? Well, it, it gets closer to normal. I mean, certainly the airport and the, the flying experience is, is with the mask. I've flown several times throughout uh, the pandemic, and the furthest I flew out was out west. Um, it's not the greatest thing, but it's not the worst thing in the world compared to what you're doing. Um, you know, at an all-inclusive resort, I think the one good thing is people spend a lot of time outside. You're at the beach, you're at the pool, you're around, you're... You know, you're not wearing it in your room. You're not wearing it on your patio. You're not wearing it, you know, you're not wearing it at the table at dinner. So the, the, the mask use, I think, is, is, is not going to be any worse than going out for dinner here in Ontario. Let's put it that way. Um, so I think the, the very nature of, of travel being 
mostly outdoors in, in terms of what Canadians want in the winter, um, I think it's, I think it'll be a fairly good experience. Richard Vanderloo, president of tripcentral.ca. Really appreciate your time today, Richard. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Take care. There is some news that I think is, is going to catch a lot of people's ear because quite fairly, the Commonwealth Games bid, there are those who have been absolute supporters and big boosters of this, and there have been others that have been a little concerned because they say, do we need to be spending money on a Commonwealth Games or any other kind of multi-sport games? Well, what we've learned in the last few hours, 24 hours or so, is that Hamilton, the what Hamilton 100 Commonwealth Games bid committee is going to be seeking $0 from the city of Hamilton. I think a lot of people are suddenly going to say, well, okay, I can get on board with this. I didn't want to see us spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, but I could maybe have a conversation now. Lou Forporti is with the Hamilton 100 committee. He joins us now. Lou, thanks for doing this today. How are you, Scott? I'm excellent. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Excellent. Was that, was what I was just saying, was that something that you had been hearing not only from people around town, but also from councillors that maybe there was interest in hosting the games, but there was concern about the money that was being spent in a city that quite frankly doesn't have money and is scrounging to fix the things that it needs to fix already? Well, we definitely heard that in Hamilton, but we haven't only heard that here. We hear that everywhere multi-sport games are being proposed as being too expensive, too big, not helpful enough and depriving communities of, of investment and attention where they're needed most. And this is especially a problem coming out of a pandemic. And when you have so many business leaders and academics, researchers, consultants trying to figure out how to address that, you come up with something like this. So if not from the city, then where would it, there's got to be money involved. So where does the money come from? Well, it, it, the story isn't simply that the city isn't being asked for money. The story is that the private sector is being asked to step up and put up money first. We're looking to, to essentially redesign the way these bids are created as part of our legacy ambition for making games like this more sustainable and focusing them on impact. And, and the concept is to take it away from an event years from now and make it about catalyzing impact largely centered on private sector investment up front right now in a way that's consistent with a vision about community and community benefit. And that's what we've created. Uh, out of curiosity for the private sector investment, how much money are we talking about? How much would putting on a Commonwealth Games cost, even if it was private money? Well, it, it's, it's hard to answer just that way. So normally a Commonwealth Games bid or Pan Am, depending upon the magnitude of the infrastructure investment, um, you know, how many events, what's required can be in excess of a billion dollars. That's what it would cost. The more important question typically isn't how much does it cost, but who's paying? Mm. And that's what we've attempted to address here. If the value proposition is to catalyze investment and activity and employment and education and all of the benefits that come with these kinds of projects, not defer them to 10 years, making them contingent on the government supporting it, but creating a really enormous coalition of private sector partners and institutions to say, we'll sign up for that and commit investments centered on infrastructure, urban uh, development towards the games and do it now. We've got a movement on our hands and that's largely funded by the private sector and not the government. And the hope is in the end, certainly with the province and federal government, with the private sector committing so much uh, economic investment up front, as part of the games proposition, there can be a conversation about supplemental senior government support 
in areas that really need it, like additional accommodation or those public realm investments that the private sector couldn't do, but the government is well positioned to support with. Okay. And okay. that's value. So the private sector, we'd love to believe that everything that everybody does in this kind of sphere is philanthropic, but we know that companies also have to make money. They have to be profitable. They have to survive. So if I'm a private sector company that is going to get involved in this, what do I get out of this then? What's the benefit to me to be involved? Well, there's two ways in which that that happens. And this is not about philanthropy. Let's be clear about that. We hope to catalyze philanthropy, but it's not about that. It's about shared value. It's about good business. Principally, we started with infrastructure. We have a leader in PJ Mercanti that leads a consortium that is now redeveloping the downtown core. That redevelopment is going to be aligned with the values of the games movement, which are focused on things like Indigenous involvement uh, in employment and experiential learning and education inclusivity, bringing a variety of different groups into these initiatives and consulting with the public around the expansion of the development project in a way that only a games can create. That's one private sector partner that's doing that. He's doing it because he's a great guy, but it's also very good business. We're going to announce another very large development project that's being committed to the games effort that will house potentially game sites and, and, and maybe soon a third in another GTA West community that will collectively comprise several hundred million, if not in excess of one to two billion dollars in real estate activity that will all be committed to the games, but serve to benefit these communities economically and the businesses that are connected to them right now. So, yeah. So I, and I thank you for the honesty, because look, I, I, a lot of people would say it's all about philanthropy, but we all know that's not true. There is a benefit to those who would get involved here. And, and, and frankly, I think that's important. If you want to get them to do it, there has to be something for them. Let's be honest. Correct. That's, that's would the expectation, the Lou, would the expectation then be if the city's not going to give money directly, if it's not going to be a cash thing, would the expectation be they would at least make it easier to get some things done by removing red tape or getting out of the way in certain ways so that we can make things happen? Oh, that, that's it's an exceptional point and one of the conversations we want to catalyze and discussions we've had with the city. We're not obliging or asking the city to spend money, but we've created a platform in the games in which the city can bring to us initiatives, potentially events, or, or even projects that it might wish to include in the games for its purposes. And we're open to that conversation because we're in a position now to bring private sector partners to make those projects more viable. We're also in a position by incorporating them into the games to go to the province and federal government and say, as a P3 project, this looks much better for our community than it would otherwise. And we're inviting those conversations. And of course, we expect that the city, many cities who are part of this, will all cooperate and, and align around the vision, making these things happen more quickly as part of the vision that brings the entire GTA West around something that has international profile. And not 10 years from now, Scott, now. Right. Right. So, so the right city now. wouldn't have to be involved, but if the city has a project that would somehow now work with this, that's on the table, they could jump in on this and have the private sector partnership. Correct. And we're going to announce further that private sector, an enormous number of private sector companies are going to sign on to assist and work with community groups and organizations. And this is more philanthropic to assist them in a variety of different community needs. We're going to announce three major fundraising initiatives starting next month, led by private sector partners aimed at major Hamilton charities that are part of the games initiative. And we're going to keep doing that, bringing the private sector forward to make financial contributions through their corporate social responsibility programming 
to communities in need today. And that'll be part of the game's impact strategy. Lou Forporty with the Hamilton 100 Group. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. Take care, Scott. Uh, that See, I, I we got to go, but I, I really think that coming forward with a bid that says to the city, we don't want any of your money. Uh, see, now you've got people listening, whereas before I think you may have had a lot of people saying, I'm not wanting to spend. Now I think people will listen. I think it's a very, if you can pull it off, it's a very clever move. Very clever. And now suddenly I think the Commonwealth Games is a feasible topic for a lot of people who otherwise would have dismissed it. But that's just me. We will we will see. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I am told this is the part of the show that the fans clamor for loudest. At least that's what Ted Michaels told me. The oh, round no. table with Ted Michaels <laughs> and Lisa Pileski. Oh, yeah, see? there you go. The studio audience is enthused. They're enthused. A, a huge studio audience here. Yeah. Uh, Ted Michaels, I say Lisa Pileski joining us. And let me let me throw this to you guys because this story has been going on so now on now since the weekend. And everyone's had an opinion on this. And I'm sure you guys have talked about this already. What do you do? McMaster is now saying we gotta figure a way. We don't want to be known as a party school. So what do you do to prevent something like this from happening again? And is it even on McMaster to make these decisions and these changes? Well, let's put it this way. This type of event was held at Queen's uh, Labor Day weekend. Western's notorious for this. It was held at Waterloo last weekend, unofficially. I really don't think, what are they going to do? As they say, put up a giant fence and keep all the kids from Mac from not venturing out into the street? I know Mac said it's not their official homecoming because they didn't have one planned for this year because of COVID. So I, I really don't know what you can do to prevent the publicity that you're getting because of this type of event. But it was interesting today that an arrest was made and the person that was arrested was a Burlington resident who goes to Wilfrid Laurier University. So maybe it's not all Mac students. Well, we know it's not all Mac students. And I mean, the the one way to do this, I suppose, is you've got to wear those neck shock collars that dogs wear if you're a student (laughs) and you leave campus. And there, if a party breaks out, someone just hits the master button and and then everyone goes back to school. Um, But Lisa, I like... I'm with Ted on this one. And look, I, I'm not, I don't believe that everything McMaster does is right. I also don't believe everything McMaster does is wrong. They do more right than wrong by far. I don't see how you put this fully on McMaster. I've heard some people say Mac has to do something. I think for me, this is a personal responsibility thing. The people who were there causing the problems absolutely unquestionably by themselves are responsible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was a McMaster student and I mean, I, maybe I was, it you was never because- never tipped a car? No, but I guess maybe because I wasn't living through a pandemic. So this is their excuse as they're trying to exercise that. I know Ted, I can see Ted shaking his head. I know, I know. I, it is completely, it's on the students and they're probably technically adults. They are old enough to know better. This is not, it's not Okay. Why I'm shaking my head is I'm I'm not buying the COVID argument at all. Oh no! Well, I just that's... think kids just wanted to go. God, I sound old, don't I? These <laughs> these kids. Well, but that's because I am. These kids. <laughs> these kids. You. Yeah. Okay, but but but, but 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 they need to be. You know when and I'm not about to tell people how to discipline or what have you. But if if it is a max student that they find and they make more arrests and charged, never mind suspending them. 
Oh, expel, expel them. Yeah, for sure. Stop, you know, being so milk toast about this, Mac. You know, this is what's the suspension going to do? Sean Rancuna, we had him on the air saying it'll be on their record forever. Good. Expel them. Thank you. Yeah, it's it. No, and it shouldn't be all that difficult. I wouldn't think with all the video and all the social media posts. This is one of the things that I, that I that strikes strikes me about this. We have moved into a time of society where people are so, we take so many pictures and post them on social media that we are no longer aware that everything is being filmed. Because otherwise, the idiots who are tipping the car would have said, wait a second, I might be seen. They may quickly know who I am. It's, it's, it's an amazing lack of awareness. Well, they because prob- we're so used to it now. They probably were. <laughs> I, I was going to say something mean. Maybe I shouldn't say something mean. They were probably hammered. Uh, well, that, that Alcohol was, was a factor, That was clearly. the less mean thing I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely hammered or, or intoxicated to some point, and they're just clearly not thinking about the repercussions. And, I mean, I... I I, it's really kind of sad in some way, but my. But if you want it, Lisa, if you want, if Mac is totally serious about what they're saying, and they really want it after this, if they really want to take a hard line against this, you know what they could do? They could hire somebody. It would cost them a little bit of money to spend the next while going over all the videos and all the footage and all the pictures and find the people who were directly involved or egging them on. And you suddenly start p- picking those people off one by one and saying, okay, you're going to... Picking and them even, off? No, but bringing them in and saying, <laughs> uh, look, I you see. can't... You're going to... We're going to have a meeting with you and we may not be able to expel you if you were only cheering for this, but that's against, you know, that that clearly... Look, if you... This is not necessarily... What they did, the ones who are standing there cheering is not necessarily a crime, but there are crimes of, you know, if someone does something horrible and you are there encouraging them, in certain cases, that's a crime. I'm not saying what they did was a crime, but I'm saying those people who are encouraging, surely they could be falling out of the school's guidelines of proper behavior for egging this on. And you say, you know what, we're you're now in our discipline system. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't really charge someone for engaging no. in peer pressure, no. but this is definitely what this was. It was people succumbing to the peer pressure of, oh, wow, it looks like that person's doing it. I want to do that too. It looks like fun. Who cares? We've been cooped up. Uh, so uh, The cooped up thing, I'm with Ted. No, okay, uh, we got two minutes. All right. I got to ask you about another story quickly. Uh-oh. The two of you guys. And okay, so just for a second, this is not really the case in case people think that our anchor people are always like a couple. But for a second, imagine, Ted, that you and Lisa are married. You're living together in a home. Okay. Would you do what Megan Trainer and her husband, the singer, all about that bass, that she, that's her. Would you do what she did? They installed side-by-side toilets in their bathroom so they could go at the same time. I hate that. I hate that so much. Why? Why would you ever? I mean, so I would. <laughs> I've always been afraid to fart around my significant other. I wouldn't want. That's the opposite of romance. Oh, I don't think there's any romance in it. I just, you, we, we can't stand to be apart, even when Is we're defecating. Is that even more so. convenient? Like, just have more bathrooms in your house. What do you say, Ted? You're being awfully quiet on this yes, one. Yes, I am. I'm not going to weigh in on this one. <laughs> uh, you know, I, no, no, that that is, no. It's it's no. too far, too d- obsessive. D- you don't yeah. love your wife that much? <laughs> no, no, no. So, because... Ted, what you're saying is you don't love your wife enough to share all your moments of your life with her. No. No, uh, please. <laughs> some moments are sacred and some should not be seen by anyone. <laughs> I I uh, I just can't fathom 
the discussion that was had before these were installed. You, you know what? What I really, when I really want to spend time with you is then. Like who? Uh, it's it's and, and who was the contractor that comes and goes? All right, we pay, we charge extra for this one, but I'm, all right. Not to mention how much more you're going to be paying in water bills if you flush at the same time. <laughs> is that a thing? Right. <laughs> There's always that. There's the common sense part. You I'm know? just going to say I've had nightmares. Like I've had nightmares where you go to the washroom and like there's no walls around you. Like that's the stuff of nightmares. So why would you actually want to live that out? I don't, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is cele- the new height of celebrity romance. No. I hate it. Maybe. Like I said off the top, I hate it. <laughs> no, no. Let's, no. And if you are someone who has ever thought, you know... I think I'd like to be a city councilor, but I don't want to go through all the hassle of having to run an election campaign and win a seat. I just like to be appointed. Well, guess what? This may be your lucky day because the city is now seeking a replacement for Chad Collins in Ward 5, and they're going to do it by appointment. All you have to do is apply. That's it. I mean, they have to choose you still. Here's what Councilor John Paul Danko tweeted today about the job. Would you like to serve your community in the exciting field of local politics? Ward 5 is now accepting applications for local counselor. No experience necessary. Strong communication skills and community service preferred. Apply today. I got to say, when I read that, it sounded a little bit like a recruiting ad for the army. Uh, the man whose victory in the federal election has made this requ- made this happen, Chad Collins, joins us now. I was going to say Ward 5 counselor, Chad Collins, force of habit, but no longer. Congratulations. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Um, were there days when you felt like what you were doing was part of a recruiting ad for the Army? <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting description from John Paul, but a fairly accurate one. Um, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, having done it for 26 years, um, you know, I, I understand it'll be a complex and difficult process in terms of trying to find the right person for the job. And, um and so I, I, I imagine they're going to have a lot of applications, and I, I imagine that there'll be a lot of people from across the city who are interested in doing it. And I would encourage those who do have an interest, as you opened with, uh, to, to make application and, and give it a shot. Well, let's talk about what it entails, because a lot of people think that it means sitting at a city council meeting on television and talking occasionally, and that's part of it. But how would you write the job description of what you've been doing for 25 years? Well, there's two components, two main components. One is the legislative part, and, and that's the one you just referenced there in terms of attending the meetings. And those meetings are not um, not only for City of Hamilton-related meetings, uh, such as the Planning Committee, Public Works. Those would be those uh, committees that people would be most familiar with. But there's also the external boards and agencies. And so I was a member of the Conservation Authority. I was president of City Housing Hamilton, member of the Police Services Board. And so there's a combination of those two elements. You're sitting on boards and committees, um, you know, almost every day of the week for business days and sometimes on weekends. And then, of course, I, what I think is probably the most important part of the job, and that is serving the residents through constituency work. And those that are most successful in politics in general, not just at the municipal level, but at provincial federal levels as well, have, have formed in very close relation, working relationships with their residents who live in their, in their ward or in, the, in, in their riding depending on the level of government. And, and that's a big part of the job. Uh, if people only phone you once um, in the four years that you're there, uh, they want to make sure that they, have a, they get a call back and they want to make sure that you're doing whatever you can to advocate on their behalf for whatever problem that they presented to you. And so those are the two main, those are the two main components, Scott, of the job. There's the legislative, your committee work, 
And then there's the constituency work where you're helping people with the problems that they present to you um, through to your constituency office. But you, if you're going to do this, I would suggest, and tell me if I'm wrong, you'd better like reading dense material because there's a lot of it, and you'd better like sitting in meetings because there's a lot of them. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no shortage of um, there's there's no shortage of information that comes your way in terms of written um, agendas and uh, reports and and that kind of stuff, and so it does take a lot of your time after hours, and so the time that you spend when you're you know when you leave the office on any given day or now work virtually working from home. You have to set aside a lot of time during the evenings and on weekends to read that material. It's very important, obviously, to, to stay informed in terms of what subject matters you're going to be dealing with. And then there's the, you know, there's the part of the job in terms of attending community events, which, you know, with, you know, with the pandemic, that obviously that part of the job has changed somewhat. Um, but there, there are, you know, social events that you should attend in your ward or across the city for uh, stakeholders and community groups who've invited you to, to, to attend certain events. And so there's, um, there's a lot of reading to do. And, and, and as you say, some of those meetings, I, I think my colleagues were in a meeting yesterday well past dinner hours. Sometimes they go till um, in the extreme. They're, you know, they're past midnight, one or two in the morning, depending on what you're dealing with. And that creates some challenges for people. If you have um, you know, a family, which most people do, to come home to, it's, um, it does create some challenges as it relates to that uh, proper live-work balance and... and um, and so that's something to consider when get, just getting into politics in general, but you know, not just the municipal level, but mm. um, whether you're a school trustee, I'm certain, or whether you're you're an MP at the federal level, uh, you, there's there's certainly great demands on your time, both from you and, and for your family, who um, you know probably won't see you at certain times of the year for long stretches of time. Would I suggest that it would also be a good element to have that you have thick skin? No doubt about it. Uh, with uh, social media, especially, um, and all the things that we read on Facebook and Twitter and other platforms, y- you really do need to have a, a, a thick skin. And and certainly, you know, m- most people aren't calling to compliment you on work that's occurring. Most <laughs> people are calling you with a complaint, and you know they have an issue that is bothering them either at their house, on their street, in their neighborhood. And so, you know, you, you, you can deal with very emotional issues where you have maybe a, a neighbor and a, two neighbors who are squabbling or fighting with each other and you're acting as the referee. Emotions can run high. And so, um, you know, definitely there's, it's not for the faint of heart. One of the things, we only have a very short time, but one of the things that would that raise some eyebrows when they, when council, not with you there because you'd moved on, but was deciding about your replacement was Judy Partridge made the comment that this was an executive level position and this is not, you know, you need to have somebody who can come in and do this. Now, it was pointed out at that time, 25 years ago, when you came in, you did not have that executive level experience. Correct. You were a young man with very little experience really in the world. Yeah, I was still a student was, at the master at the time. Was she wrong or has the position changed considerably in those 25 years? I think it has changed somewhat. When I started, it was a part-time position for most of the people who were representatives on Hamilton City Council. And so most of the councillors that I served with at that point in time had a, a, another occupation. Um, some, you know, a couple of them were insurance um, uh, brokers. Uh, we had someone who was in the steel industry still, uh, some factory workers. We had people, who, somebody who worked at WSIB as an example. And so it was really a part-time position, and it has morphed especially since amalgamation, it has morphed into something completely different. So I, I, I wouldn't say that, it's, you know, it, you do receive a lot of training to start from, from city staff. 
Uh, there's a, a lot of information certainly to digest, just as I'm going through that process right now now with an orientation process at the federal level. Um, but I, I don't think it's um, I don't think it's a requirement that you have um, you know experience in this field because it's very unique. There's there are not many occupations where you can easily transition into it and think and think you know everything and can, and can do the job on day one without any assistance from anyone. I just there's, there aren't a lot of occupations out there, and this one True. especially is is a little different in that regard. That is former Ward 5 councillor Chad Collins, now the MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. Uh, Listen, congratulations again, and thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Scott. And I don't know if you saw the story, uh, if you saw the news, but it's it's a little bit eye-catching. And if you're from around here, if you follow any of the Toronto sports franchises, you'll probably be familiar with Tim Laiwiki. He was the guy who ran Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, hired Brendan Shanahan to run the Leafs, hired Masai Ujiri to hire to look after the Raptors, helped rebuild BMO Field, helped rebuild Rico Coliseum, now Coca-Cola Stadium at the X. Um, anyways, guy, he's, he's in charge of building the New York Islanders Arena and the Seattle Kraken's new arena. Well, he is now involved in the downtown arena project here in Hamilton with Hupeg, the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. I always get tied up trying to remember that one uh yeah the one of the biggest the biggest arena developer in the world is now part of this program pj mercanti is the guy who runs hupeg he's in charge he joins us now pj how are you today doing great thank you how you doing today Uh, i'm listen i'm fine i'm sure you're excited about this because this is this is a name and, and you know i don't know if there was a lack of credibility or a lack of whatever but when you bring in a name like this i gotta believe that it it adds something and makes some people's eyebrows perk up a little bit Absolutely, and we're we're honored and delighted to announce that we'll be partnering with Oakview Group on this initiative and on this redevelopment project. and uh, And they believe in the vision. They believe uh, in Hamilton, uh, and, and recognize that there's you know we, we're an amazing market. We've we've got uh, one of the hottest uh, real estate markets in Canada. We've got a lot of opportunity before us, and so we're honored that Oakview Group is wanting to plant a flag here in Canada and and, and have it start in Hamilton. Uh, we're excited for for what's to come with them, and and they bring a level of of, uh, of sophistication and and industry know how uh, to the table that is literally unrivaled. You know, they're they're the biggest arena development company in the world at at present, and so by us aligning with them, I think it's a, it's a, it's a vote of confidence in the city of Hamilton and in our potential, and in this project, this redevelopment project for downtown Hamilton that uh, that we're certainly excited about and we hope that uh, that the you know citizens of Hamilton are, are equally excited and at a lot more base level than all that even what it does that, that previously you had said that the redevelopment of the arena at first Ontario Center was going to be about 50 million bucks they've arrived and now that jumps up to 80 million bucks uh, what what does 30 million extra dollars bring us in an arena here well, what it does is it really helps us to look at the investments required to bring the arena to a standard that, that others, when they attend arenas across North America, you know, there's a certain expectation uh, of food and beverage amenities, you know, other fan zones and fan experiences to really ensure that we elevate the, the, the entire uh, experience for any fans, whether it's for a hockey game, a music concert, a family event. We want to make sure that people feel uh, feel comfortable and have access to 
you know, really unique food and beverage offerings and different types of premium lounges and zones of that nature. Uh, and so there, you know, with, with, through their partnership, we, we will make sure that the arena itself is taken to that next level. Uh, and so at a very base minimum, we're looking at hopefully an $80 million renovation of the arena. And, and, and with that, you know, we believe that there could be incremental investments in the entire district by having them aligned with us on the arena. And there would also be Oakview group influence and investment in the concert hall as well. So, so we're, we're honored to have them, you know, at the table with obviously the, the prime heartbeat of the city, which is that arena and with another key asset, which is the concert hall. I think a lot of people listening go, that's fantastic. I love the idea that the arena is going to have all these premier amenities. And at the same time, they may have thought to themselves, that sounds like I'm going to be paying more though, to go to an event there. Is this inevitably going to lead to prices going up for an event in an arena downtown? Not necessarily in the sense that, you know, this investment is create more, uh, more uh, spaces and, and, and offerings for food and beverage meeting. There's a lot of undeveloped space on the north side of the arena in different pockets of that arena that with their investment and the HUPEG investment, we will be able to really ensure that those parts of the arena that the general public, whenever they've gone to a concert or a hockey game at that arena, they're not aware of the totality of that space and how the entirety of that space could be activated with the right investment dollars. So what we'll be able to do is essentially create new revenue buckets. And our vision is to ensure that the north side of the arena that is on the York Boulevard um, district area along the, the front side of York Boulevard there facing the arena, that that whole area is developed to ensure that it could be open hopefully 365 days a year with other types of restaurants and, and, and beverage outlets that ensure that the arena becomes not just uh, a place for communi- community getting together on game days, but 365 days a year. So we're really looking at activating the space and taking advantage of all the uh, dead zones of that current arena and turning them into live zones where there's action and activity. Very quickly, because unfortunately we're really short on time here, but they are OVG, Tim Laiwiki's group. They are looking, they're developing the Islanders Arena in, in uh, Long Island. Uh, they are developing the Krakens Arena in Seattle. Do they come in and essentially just take over this project then? Are they now in charge of this? They're going to be Hupeg's partner. So, so the, the, you know, the arrangement that we arrived at with OP Group, it's been very collaborative. There's alignments on vision, on values. Uh, there's just a good vibe, and you know, Scott, having been in business, uh, you know, for a while, we know that alignment with partnership is critical. So, uh, at a at a very core, there's alignment there. They understand the importance of of, of making sure that we get this right, and and they want to work with us. They understand the priorities that we have, and we will lean on their expertise. You know, you know, they're developing right now four billion dollars worth of stadiums and arenas globally. You mentioned Seattle, you mentioned New York, but they've got projects going on in Manchester, in Palm Springs. And, and so they bring a, a, a tremendous amount of clout uh, on arena investment. 
And they also bring the operational expertise. You know, uh, Peter Luco, who's one of the, the co-chairmen of, uh, of Oakview Group, he, he was the founder and former president of Spectra. He was the former president of the Flyers and is the current chairman of the uh, Florida Panthers Hockey Club. Uh, one of the other investors in, in Oakview Group, uh, Irving Azoff, is the former CEO and executive chairman of Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Uh, so these folks know the world of sport and live entertainment yes. better yep. than anybody. So we're honored to be working with them. We're going to lean on their expertise on a national and global level, and they're looking forward to working with us because we understand the local landscape and making sure that this arena is perfect for the people of Hamilton. Appreciate it. Uh, PJ Mercanti, the man behind the Hupe, the guy leading Hupeg right now with the, uh, with the arena project. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. No, thanks, Scott. Cheers. Not the Scott Radley show. That'll be back soon. Just so we can get all the members of the CHML family on the show at once. Let's bring Rick Zamperin, the big boss man into the show. Rick, how are you? Host, hey. by the way, of the Good Morning Hamilton at some ridiculous hour of the morning before even the crows <laughs> and the chickens are awake. But fantastic show. Thanks Thank for doing you. this. And now making it like the full, we, we didn't get Bill on the show today. He's the only part missing of this and we could have had everything covered. You, you can get him on tomorrow. That's going to be the plan. Let's make it a fiesta. <laughs> yeah. So, Rick, I wanted to bring you on because the Toronto Argos played last night. They hosted the Ottawa Red Blacks, hosted the Ottawa Red Blacks in Toronto at BMO Field. They beat them. Uh, 35-16, they won. They're now 4-0 and at home this year. It's a good year for the Toronto Argos. You would think this would be a pretty good thing for moving tickets and getting people interested. Their first home game of the year, they drew 9,866 people. Their second home game, they drew 9,702. Their third home game, they drew 7,758. And last night, they drew, I don't even think the word abysmal qualifies, a, 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 a sickly 6,788 fans. Rick, how can a professional football team continue playing, honestly, when you're drawing fewer than 7,000 fans for a game? Well, they can continue to do that under one scenario, and that's the current scenario that they find themselves in, and it has to do with four letters, M-L-S-E. Um, MLSE owns the Toronto Argonauts. As we know, MLSE has extremely deep pockets. Uh, most notably, they own the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the Raptors, Toronto FC, Toronto Marlies, and, of course, uh, the Argonauts. Without MLSE, I'm not sure there's an ownership group or an owner who would, A, want to buy this franchise, or, B, keep it afloat, because with 6,700 fans, and I know there's some special circumstances around that, but still, this uh, this trend is nothing new. Uh, football and Toronto, at least CFL football in Toronto, have not gotten along for the better part of two decades and um, it's tragic. Yeah, but not to see. like this. Not like this. And, no, and no, I, I no. assume the spe- I assume the special circumstances you're referring to is COVID. But look, there are other facilities and other fields. They can have up to like fifteen thousand. Like they're yeah. not even remotely close to hitting the COVID limit. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the Tiger Cats are playing in, in in a pandemic as well, and they're drawing you know fifteen, eighteen thousand fans, whatever they're allowed to draw. I mean, it's 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 basically a sellout up to the maximum capacity that they're allowed. You look across the Canadian Football League, and yeah, there are some attendance woes in BC and places like Montreal, and Saskatchewan isn't drawing like they used to either. And even you know, you can say the same for Calgary uh, and Edmonton. You know, Winnipeg is maybe the only outlier in terms of drawing 
at full or near full capacity. But still, you know, for the Argonauts, the, the, the Argos are so far down the sports totem pole in Toronto. It's, I mean, you can barely see them because they're so, I mean, they're underground at this point, really. Uh, all we need is a service right now because, uh, you know, the, the, the fat lady has sung, yes. the flowers have been purchased, the tombstone is in effect. It's just a matter of them going away. Um, you know, uh, the Wednesday night game and against Ottawa, probably the worst team in the league, maybe didn't help either. But the fact of the matter is, you know, this team should easily be at its max capacity for an outdoor uh, venue. But there's no buzz about this team. Like, who's talking about the Argos? Yeah, they're 4-0 at home. Yeah, they're leading the East Division. But no one in Toronto or outside Toronto is talking about the Argonauts. They're talking about the, the Raptors getting started, the Maple Leaf season starting out next week. Uh, you know, what's TFC doing in the off season? Those really are the top three uh, entities. You know, a great Blue Jays season. They're still talking about that, and their season's done. Um, the Argos have found themselves in, uh, you know, a universe and their star is in another galaxy and it's just, it's unreachable at this point. I'm not sure if it's even, uh, salvageable at this point. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not. And here's the thing. I mean, there are guys who are playing on that team, American players, and I'm not, I'm only halfway being facetious here. There are guys on that team who probably their inter-squad games in high school drew more fans than that. Yeah. Seriously, who played in Texas and stuff like they, they've probably never played in front of 6,000 or 6,700 people. It, it's, it's, it is an, and here's the issue. You're right. MLSE can prop up this franchise, but it is an embarrassment to the league mm-hmm. to have a team drawing that few people. It looks terrible on the league and all the other teams. It, it absolutely does. And you watch it on TV or if you're, you know, one of the 6,700 people who were there, it looks horrible. I mean, it looks Bush League, it, uh, let's call it a spade a spade. It is Bush League. When you can only attract 6,700 people in a metropolis of 4 million, you know you're doing something incorrect. And, and what that is has been a slow burn of generational exodus in terms of fandom because mm-hmm. they found other more exciting um, uh, things to do, whether it's sports or, or non-sports. The Argos are really a non-factor. I am convinced that the person who has been put in charge of selling tickets for the Argos is on a prisoner release program. And this is part of their punishment (laughs) because that would be the worst job in the world to have to try and sell tickets to that. I mean, it's just, as you say, Rick, it's not even that people just are going, ah, I'm not sure it's consistent. There, there is a, how many times have we heard with other teams where it's the place to be? You know, the Jays back in 2015 and even when yeah. they came back, but in, it's the it's the hot place. It's the place you want to be and be seen. Do you want to be seen at an Argos game? If you're interested in status or whatever else, is being seen at an Argos game a status symbol? Or is it a sign that now in Toronto, and I'm not, I'm not saying this coming from me or for you as CFL fans, but for a lot of people in Toronto, is it a loser thing to be at an Argo game? That's a problem when you've got that kind of thing going on. Yeah, when you have 6,700 people coming out, it's it doesn't scream, you got to be here, because no one no. apparently wants to be there. And, you know, the big question is, it, I guess I was going to say, uh, you know, how do they fix it? I, I think the bigger question is, can they fix it? Is this thing fixable? And, you know, back to my salvageable question, I'm not, I'm not sure it is. You know, this team has hosted a couple of Grey Cups in the last 10, 15 years. They've won a couple of Grey Cups in the last 10, 15 years, so... You know, they've had good enough teams. They've had some really good star players. You know, Ricky Ray comes to mind. That was a big splash when he was dealt to Toronto. And there was some buzz in the community. That really didn't translate into 
another generation or a new generation of fans or even bringing back some old fans. They've lost a bunch, and they're never going to get them back. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how or if they can fix that that issue. Rick Zamperin, you can hear him not only tomorrow morning, bright and early at 5.30 if you're up that early, but on Monday after the Ticats game, host of the fifth quarter, you can call in regardless of your state of sobriety, you can call in and comment on the game because we have had people, Rick has had people in all various forms of sobriety and some of them are interesting. Uh, Rick, I always appreciate this. Thanks for the time. You got it, Scott. Have a good one. Uh, thank you to Will. We got to wrap up. Thank you to Will for uh, organizing things, lining up guests, keeping us on the air today. Ted and Lisa for handling all the stuff in the news. I'll be back for Scott once more tomorrow at three o'clock. Until that time, have yourself a great night. 